welcome to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. This is episode 24. We've been away for a while. Hey, nice to see you. Thanks for uh, popping by. We've got a magnificent episode for you today. It is a long one, but I've split it into three parts. So if you want to take it uh, one chunk at a time, feel free to do that. They're both 18, 20 minutes each. Uh, But we have Chad Flynn and Sally Vinden on the show. We talk about a ton of stuff. Constructionism, constructivism, Vygotsky, behavior theory. We talk about social constructionism. We talk about experiential learning. We talk about apprenticeship. It's all encompassed in apprenticeship, of course, because we're all tradespeople. We talk about providing context for the learner and breaking the rules. Chad's a real rule breaker, and he brings that uh, to the show in fire. And then at the back end of the episodes, we talk about backwards design, authentic assessments. We talk about developing a thinking pedagogy, not just a dump and run pedagogy. And then we talk about some ways that we can incorporate authentic assessments into what we do. We identify a bunch of different stuff that we want to talk about. And man, like I said, this is a killer episode. So glad that you've tuned in to listen to this one. Ton of value. I know you're going to love it. Thanks for coming by. Have a great day. We'll see you on the flip side. Been a while. Cool. You think? <laughs> you think? I think the last episode was like back in February. Pre-COVID for sure. <laughs> yeah, pre-COVID. What were those days like anyway? I can't remember what they were like. None of us can remember what they were like. No. 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 For those of you listening and not watching, we have a very special guest with us this morning. This is Dr. Sally Vinden. Good morning, sir. (laughs) This has been a long time coming. Hey, this this one's been on the books for months. We've just all had such busy schedules that we end up having to reschedule. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. And you've just finished something too, haven't you? Who, me? Or Sally? No, you. Yeah, I finished my coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Really? I just started mine. I've only been up Uh, for 45 minutes, so. No, I finished, I just finished, like I was saying before we started taping this, I just finished my rough draft of my thesis for my master's. Hey, this is where I start all the hand clapping in the screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good deal. And Sally, you finished something very, very significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I did. It was a bit of a long journey, um, about three years longer than I had um, anticipated, but Admits that snowstorm back there on uh, in January, mm-hmm. I defended my dissertation. So that was pretty exciting. Nice. That's so awesome. Yeah. Yep. And I actually imagined that I would have all of this spare time. So after seven years, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and when people keep saying this is, you know, COVID-19 and they, you know, they have no time, they're always yeah. working, I'm like, this just seems like doing a PhD to me. Yeah. <laughs> There's been no transition for me. Same old, right. same old. You're looking around like, what's your problem? Huh? What's your, have you not done a PhD before? <laughs> yeah. Right? This is what it feels like. Yeah. Exactly what it feels like. See, now you're in it. You can do one. You can do it. Yeah. Right? I, be- I believe I'm right there with Peter Jarvis. I believe everyone can achieve a PhD. You just have to want to do it. Yeah. For a very long time, yeah. much longer than you think you're going to have to want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> kind of sounds like losing that last 20 pounds. Everybody can do it. Yeah. It's just, a, it's just a matter of willpower and time, right? Seven years. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. So how long did you expect it to take, Sally? I actually thought it would take, um, you know, max four years. I had okay. in my mind. but. You know, I have this tad of a problem that if something sounds really interesting, if there's an opportunity that sounds really interesting, then I have a hard time saying no to it. So a year into my PhD, I had this offer of taking on the uh, curriculum development project over there in Trinidad and Tobago. 
And I thought I could do that off the side of my desk. But that wasn't the case. That ended up being a three and a half year project. And, you know, I was in Trinidad and Tobago between three or four times a year. And um, so, you know, working full time and doing a PhD. So you end up spreading things sort of, you know, a little bit thinner and but really great opportunities. So all good. Made it there in the end. (laughs) That's awesome. And what was the thesis of your doctorate? Oh, gosh, this is always such I have to stop and think. It was um, an exploration of BC TVET instructors' perceptions that shape their curriculum decisions. So to break that down a little bit, TVET is the term for trades, vocational, education, and training. So my focus was, um, well, my research was uh, with, trades instructors in BC and instructors that taught ITA programs. Mm. So I think we've lost Tim. Oh, oh, there he is. He's back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So what I was looking at is how our perceptions of trades instructors, the way we think about education, the way we see our purpose as educators in the trades, Um, our perceptions around our characteristics of our students as in their cognitive abilities or how they define themselves, whether they see themselves as hands-on learners or academic learners, that, you know, that binary that exists there. So that's, that's the rabbit hole I went down with my research. And if you would like, there's 220 pages of light reading about it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, we've got quite the list of uh, subjects to talk about today, don't we? Hot topic. Do yeah. Yes. Do you think we're going to get through all of them? I don't think so. <laughs> Knowing us, no. There's no chance of it. We'll get through, we'll get through one the of first them. question. Yeah, yeah. we we'll spent an hour on the first question. And well, we've got about 14 episodes here, so that's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, what do you want? What do you guys want to tackle? Do you want to tackle the experiential learning, competency based, or constructionism, constructivism? That's hard to say in a one sentence. Well, Dealer's choice. Dealer's yeah. choice. Well, you you guys are freshly educated. Like you guys got freshly minted education there, so. Uh, let, let's go constructive constructionism and constructivism. Maybe that will be the impetus for some of the other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. Okay. That's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Good place to start. Okay. So what are the tenets of both? So they almost sound the same. So what, what, tell me, uh, what is the difference between constructionism and constructivism? Maybe Chad, you go and tell me the constructionism piece. Well, I think you, in order for us to talk about constructionism, I think you need to start with constructivism because it's kind of, I think it's oh, nice based a little bit off that. <laughs> nice. Nice. And I, may, I, as far as in my research anyways, and maybe Sally could speak to that too, because I know she's a huge Vygotsky fan. So yeah, we, could ask, we can yeah. go back and forth on that. Yeah. And he is not a Russian hockey player. <laughs> no, far from it. Far All right, Sally, it. how about you start us off? Okay, so I think that, you know, the easiest way to really um, think about constructivism is if we take it back to the old model of behaviorism. And I, in behaviorism, the way we see it is that um, if we take, for example, a student, we believe that what goes in as in what is taught then comes out of the other side and has changed behaviors and understanding. We see that um, the fact that knowledge or information is disseminated from one person, it's just purely absorbed by the listener and therefore the listener will now be able to do. So, That requires um, learners then to regurgitate what they've heard. So quite simply, it's like an input and an output. Those of you that aren't 
look at you know watching this they can't see my hands going along <laughs> in these directions doing the waves <laughs> doing the waves so this idea of behaviorism <clears throat> you know we can trace this all the way back to Pavlov and his dogs there but we see the belief um these these beliefs still exist in today that if you have read maybe um you know sections of the textbook and now i i assess you with a multiple choice test and you are able to regurgitate recall everything that you read in that book and put it in the correct answer then we believe that you understand in constructivism we don't see this input and output we see a triangle so there's input on the left hand side and output on the right hand side but at the point of that triangle we see this area which is the constructivism this is where the learning is mediated it's a interaction between the learners everyday understandings of a concept and the new information of the concept the scientific principles so it requires the learner to be active in the construction of their understanding in the yeah in constructing their understanding and it is this place where as i was saying your everyday concepts have to really clash there has to be a tension between what you understand now and what you're learning and that's where we get into that real problem solving piece is the ideal way for a learner to actually shift their current understanding and and that sort of um will lead us later into the topic of experiential learning and i think just keeping those behaviorism and constructivism those two models in mind helps us helps us go forward on that conversation mm-hmm. okay so is that is that where problem based learning comes out of when you're talking about that tension between everyday understanding and the combination of the new language and, and there's that constructivism piece. Does problem-based learning come out of that? Yeah, it does. Many of those, um, you know, those educational theories come out of that in actual fact. You know, when we look at problem-based learning, team-based learning, um, experiential learning, they're all sitting on the constructivism side of the mm-hmm. house. Right. I mean, okay. if we had... 10 hours we'll delve all the way into the differences between social constructivism yeah. and actual constructivism but i don't think i don't think we want to go there <laughs> yeah anyway um, i'll give you just a quick um example of of an everyday concept sure. so for example with a child if you take a glass of water and and a needle and you drop the needle into the glass of water a child will say that a long thin object a long thin narrow object will sink in water so right. that's what they've seen so then scientific you know science from the scientific point of view now we'll take a matchstick and we'll drop that in the glass of water and now that floats so you've disrupted right. their previous understanding mhm mhm okay I think a lot of it too, like you're, when you talk about behaviorism and I know it's almost, it's a, it's almost a naughty word, right? Behaviorism when we talk about education, but why is that? Well, because I think we want our students to construct their own meaning out of this. And we understand now that they, they actually learn better by actually adding meaning to these things. But what I, I push back a little bit because when like talking about like the elementary school students, like I think there is there's a basis for some behaviorism, but I think at the same time, I think it's, it's one of those, I get so scared when people start talking in binary situations where it's like behaviorism, bad constructivism, good. When I think we do need some behaviorism, we do need to have those inputs and outputs, but we do also need to understand that there's context, right? And that our students have life experience. And I think that's what I really appreciate about the constructivist model is it takes into account that, we understand that our students, every single one of them, and I look at my 16 class, 16 person class, they each have 16 different life experiences that they're coming with. And those life experiences are going to add or deter from their learning. So we need to work within that. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And I think you, you know, you bring forward a really valid point. And if you, um, you know, dig into Dr. Kieran Egan's work on um, <clears throat> the future of education, he actually, you know, speaks to the fact that the focus of our elementary schools is on that socialization. Mm-hmm. So, there, you know, he talks about these three conflicting ideals that exist in our school systems. But I think the point that, you know, that you're making, Chad, that's really valid is that we need to be deliberate about. So there, there isn't a binary between, you know, behaviorism and constructivism as such. And yet it's whether we're deliberate about this. So are we intentional about this? And as you're saying, the context. So there are certain, in depending on what dis, which discipline you're in, we need you to memorize. Yep. So that's, that's fine. It's when we need you to prom- problem solve and yet we use methods of memorization and we are hoping that the outcome of this is that you're able to problem solve out there in the real world. So I think that, um, you know, we need to be very cognizant of when we decide to use which approach. And then we also need to align a teaching approach and our assessment approaches um, as well so that we have this consistency. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so right, Chad, totally. tell, me, tell me a little about constructionism now, now that we've got some pillars in the sand for constructivism. Tell me what constructionism is about. Well, constructivism talks a lot about how we need to take those experiences and we have to help our students construct their own meaning out of what we're teaching them. What, what constructionism does is it kind of takes it to an old new, a little bit bigger level. And Sally kind of hit a little bit on it earlier when she talked about social constructivism about how not only do students construct their own meaning, but students construct their own meaning in social settings. And so constructionism would take that and kind of amp it up a little bit more and say that, okay, students in constructivism, it's often teacher led. And teachers will focus are kind of the center and and exposing all their knowledge and then helping students create their own their own um, knowledge from that. From my understanding of constructionism, is it's more learner centered in the fact that we're helping them create these objects. And so that's one thing that that uh, like in my thesis that I've been working on is one of the theoretical frameworks I used was constructionism because my students were centered. I'd have them in groups and they were centered around creating this resource together. Mm-hmm. with very minimal input for myself. Like I was there to facilitate, but not to necessarily teach. So they would get together as a group in a social context and create meaning out of this artifact, this slide deck that they created and did it in a social setting. So they were constructing something. So it's, it's kind of centered around this a building of a public object, right? So they're creating something as opposed to just trying to create meaning. They've got an actual physical something that they're, they're gathered around that they're, they're building. And then it's the learners themselves that are driving the education, not necessarily the teacher. That's revolutionary on a couple of places. So when we look at the apprenticeship model, not really learner centered, not really apprenticeship, not really apprentice centered. It's more journey person centered. It's more legacy centered. It's, it's very much, I've spent this much time in my craft. Therefore I am the quote unquote master crafts person. And I will teach you the lowly apprentice who knows nothing. (laughs) Now that may work when the person's 17, but when the person's 27 or even 37 and they're entering the trade that that brings in a whole new wrinkle to this doesn't it mm-hmm. well definitely okay. if you, oh, go ahead sally sorry i was gonna say i think the 21st century brings a whole new wrinkle into this but maybe <laughs> we'll let chad hop in there on the first question you were going to ask and and just hold off on that you know the, the 21st century view around that model well, I think it, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say is the problem is like, we've got uh, the whole, the way that we teach is changing because of the tools that we have available to us and our students have available to them has changed. Right. So 
though one could argue that that apprenticeship model that you're talking about, Tim, never really worked. And, and when you think about it, it was in settings that created these unintentional uh, learning things like constructivism or constructionism, where they are learning around an object. Like when you learned, and I know in my last day of trade school, and it's so true of anything, they say, okay, now is when you really begin to learn because I had to go out and now I was a journey person and no longer, sometimes I would, I didn't have a journey person there to bounce ideas off of. So I had to solve my problems on my own. So I had this base foundation of knowledge, but then when I'm on my own, I've got to draw back to my experiences from that and then create new meaning out of it. Right. So that's where I did my real learning. And maybe that's what we should be doing with our apprentices is putting them into those situations where we, we give them those base, that base knowledge, but we help them to construct their own meaning and, and saying, solve this, work it, come back to me if you have a problem. And that's the way I, I had great journeymen that were like that said, okay, you know, I, if I was bending pipe or if I was trying to prob- like troubleshoot a, a circuit, go work on it for a bit. And if you can't figure it out, come back and we'll work it out together. And like nine times out of 10, I would eventually figure it out because I had the knowledge. They knew that I had that, that scaffolded knowledge there. So they knew that if I struggled with it, I would get, get to the solution. And I did. And then you start learning how to learn. You start learning how to do all this research. So those are the things that are important. And so, um, yeah, I would, I, I push back on saying that yes, apprenticeship has been done this way, but I don't think it's always been the right way to do it. Right. And so does that phrase learn by doing fit into what the two of you are talking about? Because I've come across that term quite a bit when I'm getting ready for this podcast. And um, quite honestly, it's, it's a phrase that's uh, been adopted by the 4-H Club of Canada. Uh-huh. And, and it's, it's their motto. It's called learn by doing. Yeah. And I, I love it because it, it, it forces, it forces the, the, the constituents in the group to, to actually learn in group settings. And so in, they're, they're learning in a social context for sure. Um, but they're also, they're also becoming better at what they're doing by actually doing it. They're not just reading it and, and putting a slide deck together or, you know, writing some kind of assessment on it. They're actually in there doing it. And then, and then <laughs> they're being judged by, on what they've done. So, you know, my kids have, and I'll just take one aspect of it. My kids have done public speaking now for five, six years. They've been in, well, my oldest daughter's now in their 10th year. And right from year one, um, so when she was nine, nine and 10 years old, uh, she was public speaking in front of people who were judging her on her public speech as a nine-year-old, right? And she did a fantastic job and, and she's great. And there, a lot of kids were great. It's not like she was the only one. A lot of kids were great. And the thing that stuck out to me was, you know, we as adults, we don't even like doing that. Like, People would rather be in the in the box rather than delivering the eulogy. That's that's the Seinfeld joke about public speaking, right? Um, and we're and we're in this craft called education, and and we're 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 in front of people all the time. But a lot of people don't like doing that. And so when I was doing this research and, and getting ready for this podcast, that that phrase kept coming up time and time again: learn by doing, learn by doing, learn by doing. And it wasn't just because it was a 4-H thing that I was looking at all the time. Um, it was a lot of these different. Um, um, uh, uh, now I lost the term. A lot of different people. <laughs> I was well, I was, to be super fancy. <laughs> I was just going to hop in there and say, I mean, this goes back to John Dewey's idea yeah. of, yeah. you know, learning through doing. Um, <laughs> a couple of things that I, you know, I think that's been misunderstood though, since John Dewey actually said that back in the, you know, I don't know when John Dewey was around, pretty... Like 1700s, let's say. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I don't think it's quite bad. Right. But I think that has been misunderstood because right. we see a lot of, and, you know, this will start bringing us into the experiential learning pieces because you can, there's learn through experience, but if you are just experiencing it in the sense of that discovery learning, then the critical element here is mm-hmm. the reflection on that learning. Yeah. There has to be problem. There have to be problems. And when I say problems, those tensions, those cognitive tensions. Right. Now, we're, in, we're all in the field that our students have 
the cognitive domain and the psychomotor domain as well. So what those problems can be in the psychomotor domain, but they require the cognitive domain as well to figure it out. So I think that's something that does get overlooked a, a little or maybe a lot within the field of trains. But I think the learn through, through doing is critical at this time, but uh, an understanding of this. And, and um, Alan McKinnon writes about this, is something like learning in at the elbows. And he speaks about this, that um, apprenticeship re without reflection is simply regurgitation. Sure. And mm -hmm. I think that when you were speaking earlier around the traditional apprenticeship model, it was grounded in regurgitation. It, the mm -hmm. whole model existed on a sort of a backward glancing approach. Like this is the trade I have worked through. I am now that master craftsperson. I am bringing you to, I want to bring you to where I am. This was not forward looking. It wasn't about progressing. And we saw these slow evolutions in trades, for example until, and, and Chad alluded to this a, a few minutes ago, around until the tools change. So the thing is now we are in this place in history where that apprenticeship model is, you know, seriously disrupted by the fact that we are, we are actually educating or training, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a little while, for jobs that don't yet exist. Yeah, right. So to have this, we know the system of how these program outlines are created. We bring together groups of trades, um, subject matter experts. We bring together, you know, a few instructors of subject matter experts. And we look backwards at the trade and say, what do we need somebody to be able to do in order to be successful in this trade? But we don't look to the future and say, what does this person need for the next five years, 10 years? And we're seeing all these rapid paces of change out there in so many of the trades. And I sure. think that it's, we're focusing too much right now on specific competencies rather than the big piece here is of that constructivist approach where we are actually having you know, looking at the outcome, the learning outcomes of our programs being that you have somebody that is, can think critically and is, is, you know, experienced with problem solving and also has that ability to think in, you know, I know this term is overused, but that innovative lens. Mm -hmm. right. Well, it's just like, we have to be so careful. And I, I do, I really appreciate that term learn by doing, but I look at my own field and I can teach somebody how to bend a piece of pipe and they can keep bending that piece of pipe in a certain context and it will always work. But then if suddenly you throw a wall in the way and because they've always bent it that way, they don't know what they're doing. And so what we need to do is provide context and say, you know, you teach them the initial skills and you get them up there and you practicing and using that. But then you start throwing like crazy Ivans at them where they suddenly have to turn left instead of right and how that's going to affect the whole thing. So that's where that experiential learning comes in as we can create those scenarios for them to, to be in there. And I think it's so important for us to understand that we have to teach there. There's going to be time where they learn by doing and they understand, they learn the rules, right? They have to understand that if you do this and this, it's going to, this is going to happen. But you also have to teach them that sometimes you're going to have to break those rules and when it's appropriate to break the rules, right? So there's, when you're creating a situation and I like to use like, there's movies and music are a big thing. Like jazz is often talked about how jazz is such a genius thing because it followed along with blues and blues was very structured. And then suddenly what jazz did was it took blues and it, it used the framework of it, but then it broke the rules and it said, okay, instead of having, you know, four, four time or three, four time, we're going to halfway through go to a seven, eight. So like you just, things just yeah. suddenly changed and it worked because they knew enough about the rules to know that they could change at this point and it would still fit within the context of what they were creating. And I think yeah. not to sound too woo woo, but I think we can do that in our trades as well. We need to teach our, our trade students how to perform jazz when they're out there in the, in their field, right? They need to learn how to do that, but they won't know how to do that unless they understand the rules. That's, and you make up, you bring a good point and 
I'm not, I'm not sure if this is pushing back on that a tiny bit, but you make a good point that the best jazz musicians are multi-genre, right? So they've, they've, they've got this really diverse background mm -hmm. of, of music understanding and music theory and music practice, right? And, and then I think that's what, it, well, I think that's one of the major keys is what makes jazz players so good is that they're able to fold in those different genres within within the parameters of this new thing called jazz and so breaking the rules is is a good way to put it but i often think about okay well if, if you don't have a solid foundation how are you even going to break the rules properly mm -hmm. right and um, and for some of us in the trades like your trade chad and my trade especially you know we we break a rule incorrectly somebody could get hurt right so it's catastro catastrophic events happen and and I think that's, I think in conversations that I'm having with some people is that's, that's the tripping point with, with the, the philosophy of breaking rules, pushing boundaries, changing what we've done, because there's a fear that underlies that. So how do, how would, how would you recommend uh, myself as a trades educator begin approaching uh, course construction? pardon the pun or the connection, but how would I, how would I approach <laughs> the building of my course through these lenses? Can I, can I hop in there? Oh, of First course. Of all, in my you don't trade, need to ask. You're too polite. Just jump in. <laughs> First of all, in my trade, if we make mistakes, you end up bald, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's no problem for me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I think that like, what you just said about well, Chad going back to you with the whole blues and jazz um, understanding and, and Tim, what you, you know, picked up on brilliantly there is that this multidisciplinary approach. Mm -hmm. And I think this comes down to the absolute core of um, something that I think is holding back trades at this time and is the fact that we're still grounded in this academic vocational divide. Mm -hmm, and right. so the way that we're shaping our programs, this is leading to your question, by the way, Tim. I'm just <laughs> no problem. <kidding> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so I think that um, this is problematic when we still have this, um, yeah, we still allow us to view vocational education from this epistemological lens that says this is not academic. Right. And so for as long as we do that, we're going to be sheltering, or I would actually rather say depriving our students of that full conceptual understanding, the full conceptual understanding that you need, that you're saying they need in order to improvise. That's right. what allows them to make those judgments, to make those decisions out there in the real world, mm -hmm. and which would bring us into situated learning, which, you know, maybe that's <laughs> going to have to be a different week. So to answer your question, if you're, which I believe was, if I'm designing my program, where yeah. am I going to begin? My favorite topic, my favorite topic of, <laughs> year 2020 is that we begin with the place we should begin is with our outcomes. We should be looking at, okay, when my students have graduated from this program successfully, what is it that I want them to be able to think, know, do, understand that whole, you know, the head, the heart, the hands, what is it that they will be when they've left my program. Right. The outcome, not what they'll do while I'm in my program. And I think this, yeah. I really want to differentiate between those two because when I first started teaching, our programs were shaped by the textbooks, by right. the content. And so people spoke about what they were going to do, which activities they were going to do but they hadn't aligned them with this big overarching, you know, outcomes of the program. Right. So I'm going to say we start, we start right there with <laughs> defining, defining, you know, a series of learning outcomes that we, we intend to then shape our curriculum journey 
the learner journey to me. We dig a little deeper into that then Sally, because it's backward design, I guess, is what you're talking about. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Yeah. For some of us, it seems so intuitive that you'd want to start with the outcomes and then work backwards. But can you take us through the journey? Like you start with your outcomes, then how do you get to the end? Yeah. It's a shame we haven't got rooms for some graphics here this morning. Easy. (laughs) <laughs> because we've had, we've had, we didn't really get into the social constructivism triangle, but I'm afraid I'm going to go back to a triangle again now. Okay. And only this time we want to start with the right hand side of the triangle and, and we want to be looking at those outcomes. So we determine our, our outcomes, those big, you know, big ideas of what it is, like I say, know, do, understand. But then we need to say, okay, the next step of this is we're going over to the left-hand side, and this is an inverted triangle. Sorry, inverted triangle. (laughs) I'm a very visual um, learner here. We now want to align our assessments to meet our outcomes. So we're still not going into the content. We're staying up there high level. We want to have, oh, Tim Carson's got something going on here. I think we're going to see a triangle. So keep, keep talking. <laughs> okay. So, um, yes. Yeah. So now we're going to align our assessments. And what we want to be looking at is authentic assessments. We want to assess a learner's understanding in a way that exists out there in the real world. So um, by aligning those assessments with the learning outcomes, allows us to go far beyond multiple choice testing or Mm -hmm. fill in the blanks. These are real life scenarios. Now in trades, they may easily include psychomotor skills as well as the cognitive domain, or you may, they just, they, they might be case studies, but they paint real pictures of real life situations that need to be problem solved. Um, Once we have that alignment, between our learning outcomes and our assessments, then the last stage of this triangle coming right down here to the inverted triangle, the base, is now when we start looking at those building blocks, the the scaffolding that we're going to take our learners through. um, These are the low risk um, uh, learning activities. So they build this understanding. We're presenting problems that allow, um, you know, that pose problems at lower levels of understanding. So I'm thinking sort of a blooms here. They're our building blocks and they're where, you know, our textbooks come in as a resource of our curriculum journey, but not shaping the journey. And And just thinking about it, how many times do we know that a course actually just follows a textbook? All the time. And that's how I was taught to teach was here's your, here's the modules. Just make sure you cover all this information. Yeah. So I think we're talking about deconstructing, um, well, deconstructing that approach, which actually took full competencies that exist out there in the real real world and deconstructed those into chapters in a book. Mm -hmm. And we know once you go out there, they don't live in isolation. They exist, you know, together. Yep. And they overlap. It's, uh, and the frustrating, well, not the frustrating part is when we're dealing with trades and I, I think that this is the model that we have to go towards. I think we have to start with the outcomes and work our way backwards. Like we've been talking about, but how do we teach trades instructors how to do that when they come at it? And we've had this conversation many times, they come at it as a subject matter expert and with no idea of what pedagogy is basically the first and last time they probably heard about it was an instructor's diploma that they may or may not have had to take depending on where they went. So how do we, affect change. And I guess that might be a whole other conversation for another, for another podcast, but how do we get this moving? Cause it's, it is, 
it, I just finished up a project working on an adaptive learning platform. And that's exactly the framework that they use is you start with outcomes, then you go to your assessment from your assessment, then you start gathering your content and then you can release it to the students. So this is such a, which seems the right way to do things, but how do we teach people how to do that when yeah. all they want to do is just, you know, this is the way I was taught and you know, the, here's my book. I've been given these textbooks, so I'm just going to use those. And especially now in these days, and I'll get off my high horse in a second, but in these days of like (laughs) publishers giving them LMSs, like they're basically giving them prepackaged courses. So I'm not going to use any specific publisher names, but there's one that is in the electrical program where they'll give you basically all the PowerPoints, they'll give you all the assessments, Mm -hmm. they'll give you everything. And so there's very little thought of any kind of pedagogy that has to go into it. And so all the design is being done at the commercial textbook level. And I think we need to get that back. We need to kind of wrench it back and put it into the instructor's level as well. Use them as tools. Yes. But that's, that's it. Yeah. I I mean, I totally agree there that this is problematic and this is, you know, this comes back to the academic vocational divide where we, um, we have a subject matter experts being led to believe that we're not educators. So, you know, even in the name, um, as, as you know, here in our province, um, we're under that umbrella of training. And of course, language actually reflects, um, you know, a, a lot of understandings around it. So if we, if we approach education from the lens of training, it allows us to think that we are simply training somebody. And so these textbooks, these prepackaged curriculums do lend themselves to that approach. But when we start to look at a different approach, because we're looking at the demands of the 21st century, we're looking at those needs. And then we say, okay, well, where do we begin when we've got you know, so many great colleagues that uh, we know they've been doing a fantastic job as educators. So how do we begin this conversation and say, okay, you know, we're looking at different designs here. And um, I'm going to (laughs) say that if there is a silver lining to COVID, which I don't really believe there is, I don't think we should have waited for this to happen, but Mm -hmm. Um, suddenly, whether you like it or not, you've been forced into this, you know, digital world of teaching. And to me, it has opened up incredible opportunities for this, uh, this, this, you know, this conversation around pedagogy in the trades. And, um, and this is where we've, a colleague of mine, a very good colleague of mine, that I work with, um, Jesse Chalmers, and, and I have actually worked with a team of trades instructors over the last um, eight weeks and worked on an authentic assessment project. And the reason that these people you know, all came together and said, okay, we're running in, they're running into problems, was the moment that they went to use multiple choice exams for assessment in the trades um, in the digital world because suddenly there were all these conversations about proctoring tools, there were conversations about um, intellectual integrity and, uh, you know, and so they found themselves in this place where a multiple choice test becomes an open book test, which means everybody's getting 100% on it which leaves a trades instructor with absolutely no tools in his hand to assess learning. And so we leapt on that opportunity and said, Hey, you fancy working on an authentic assessment project. And I mean, these uh, six instructors that did this, the outcomes that they have, that they have actually produced the, you know, the, the authentic assessments that they have now designed on night and day from multiple choice um, questionnaires. So I think to answer your question, Chad, how do we go about doing this is we probably, it's a, I believe it's a grassroots initiative. I think we've been waiting for a top-down initiative and I think we were looking in the wrong direction. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. 
Uh, just because I think there's so much value in it. Can you describe some of, some of these authentic assessments? Are you able to describe like exactly how those look? Because coming from it, from having taught now in this COVID thing and where we've got the problem of online proctoring and exams that are typically done as multiple choice or fill in the blank so they can all get together and quote unquote cheat. Mm-hmm. How do, how can we provide authentic assessment? And if, what does that actually look like? What yeah. does that even mean? Yeah. Yeah. Great. <clears throat> great question. So I, you know what, we started this project with these like, six fabulous instructors and the first assignment, they didn't really know it was an assignment. We did it very subtly. And I, I really do need to give credit to Jesse Chalmers here for, for this as well, because we worked together on this, uh, initiative um first thing we did was we actually said to them okay well we're going to meet on monday what we want you to do is look up what an authentic assignment is so we actually assigned them that task and they came back they'd searched they googled around on this one and they came back with all these different you know um, resources on authentic assignments which were then shared but basically it is designing an assessment that mirrors real life situation. And so I'll provide you an example that came from culinary arts. And this is all credit to Jason Lloyd and and Buddy Wall. um, They created this assessment that they called, uh, it was a black box assessment of the tabla d'ote vegetarian menu. And so the students were, this can be done in, in real time. If they're back in the classroom, they will be given a physical black box of ingredients. And they have to create a tabla d'hote menu. So the actual physical menu as well, they have to create. Now, there's principles to tabla d'hote menus that I knew nothing about, but they're five course meals. And then they required to meet the Canadian... Um, dietary requirements so the students have to consider all of these variables in their menu it also um, needs to be vegetarian so they they slip things in there like anchovies and and other ingredients like that Um, so the students need to create the physical menu so they're looking at design as well Mm -hmm. and if we think about this if we were to look at a program outline That would be a general area of competency that would sit up here. The actual cooking of the food might be a completely different general area of competency. So these would be assessed in isolation. In an authentic assessment, we bring these together as in a situated um, learning where all of these variables or all of these competencies exist together in real life. That's amazing. That's yeah. You got my head spinning on that one. <laughs> yeah. And so that, that's all, that's all fine and dandy. And so mm-hmm. here, here comes, here comes the, my, my, my critical piece to this, that, that, that would require a thorough understanding of the provincial outline and mm-hmm. what's behind it. Because we all know that we can read the sentences and not really know where they're going sometimes with some of their quote unquote learning objectives. Um, and time. They put a lot of time into it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But that's, and so, and, oh, go ahead. Go sorry, ahead. Tim. Well, it's, it, it's that age old question of, okay, so how much do we value what we do in, in education, especially trades education, right? And it goes back to even the beginning of this podcast where we were talking about the old model of apprenticeship, that this is what I learned. This is how I'm going to teach it because this is how I was taught it. And because I think it's the best way to do it. Right. And so we're now talking not just about a disruption. We're talking about a whole new quote unquote constructive approach to it. Like we're talking about tearing it down and building it back up, keeping the foundation of apprenticeship there because that's valuable. Uh, There's a lot of things about apprenticeship model that I really love and I think should stay. And that's just my own personal opinion. Things like mentoring. Things like uh, coaching, things like uh, watch me do it, I'll help you do it, I'll watch you do it, and then you do it. That, that model of, of training, I think, is, is very valuable. 
However, there's in my own apprenticeship, there was never just one person speaking to me saying, okay, you're going to do this, 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 and this in this order for these reasons. And that's the only reason and the only order that you're going to do it in. I was fortunate enough to work in a company where I was surrounded by many journey people who had lots of experience and who were constantly telling me, don't listen to what I do specifically. Listen to, listen, listen to Dave, listen to Larry, listen to, um, to, to Rick because they're all going to look at it differently. And it's, and, and this is where it really came down to the crunch for me because I like templates. I like just replicating things at that time. The hard thing was putting that all together and making it my own. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so I think some of you are, some of you are, some of blah, 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 blah. I'll, I'll edit that out. I think some of what you're talking about <laughs> is touching up against that quite a bit here, right? Like we're talking about a reconstruction of a big part of the system. And yet we still want to keep in certain models of apprenticeship, like critical thinking and, and, and um, problem solving, which have always been there. They've just now been formalized in these essential skills lists that we've seen now for a couple of years, but they've always been there. They've always been important. And in fact, that's what's has set good, journey people apart from great ones is that the great ones have embraced that and move forward. And so when we talk about, when you talk about this authentic assessment, it takes time, doesn't it? It takes a lot of time to do this. And I would suggest, and I know Chad, you've been doing this too, is, is it takes teamwork. Like you can't do this in isolation necessarily. Like you need to bounce the stuff off of other people and it, and it becomes now a collective construction. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think, Tim, what you described there is your own experience of an apprentice. Um, whereas, you know, when you were an apprentice, um, it was probably less formalized as it is now. Because I think what's happened is we've become very good at competency-based education. And so the better we became at competency-based education, the more we deconstructed a trade and fit it very nicely into these competencies. And what you're describing, your own experience, actually has some elements in there really do resonate with um, the authentic assessments that like I'm telling you about that Jason and Buddy created. But they also, the other area that really resonates with is experiential learning and situated learning. Right. So I think that you like you're saying the qualities of the apprenticeship model that are valuable that we need to, you know, enhance further mm-hmm. are really going in this direction of experiential situated, like Chad said earlier about context. It is the deliberate piece. And so it is, you know, where do we begin when we've allowed you know, myself as well, I left industry on Friday night and there I was on a Monday morning in front of a group of students. And I was then, I had to have the title of an instructor. So what motivates somebody that's already employed as an instructor being told that, you know, you're doing a great job, you're a subject matter expert, what then motivates them to say, hang on a minute, I'm going to spend weeks and weeks and weeks now developing these authentic assessments and, and restructuring my program from a competency base into more of a, a situated learning experiential yeah. approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, and, and, and I want to move into the experiential learning. So maybe this will be a nice bridge into that in the sense that I was, I was listening to a web a webinar yesterday from um, the president of Athabasca, I'll edit that out too. Athabasca <laughs> <Please> University. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, he, he comes from a bit of a trades background. He was the vice president provost at Nate, right? Um, and uh, he, I, I don't know if he ruffled feathers, but it was almost like you could hear the silence through the chat line when he mentioned this. He brought up the, the idea of interdisciplinary approaches. Right. And that I know, especially in a, in an organized environment, there is no interdisciplinary work. Right. Chad, like as an electrician in a, in a, in a, in a, in a mill, there is no way that you'll be going outside the boundaries of what you are required to do. 
just like I, as a steam fitter, pipe fitter, plumber, there was no way that I'm allowed, right? Even if I wanted to, I'm allowed to stretch those boundaries and do that connection or, or go and do this, right? Um, and in fact, the, the, there's been, a, there's been a, a movement to try and cross-pollinate trades or get people with multi-tickets within uh, light, medium, and heavy industry so that this, this kind of thing can happen. And it's always been pushed back against. And he brought up this idea of the way moving forward now is this interdisciplinary approach of why should one person be restricted to doing this thing when they can also learn this other thing and now essentially uh, do multiple, multiple jobs. But that's my bridge into experiential learning. So tell me the connection between experiential learning and and what we were talking about in regards to constructivism, constructionism, authentic assessment, uh, everyday understanding, tension, problem-based learning. Let's all throw this into a big potpourri bowl and light it up. <laughs> well, I'm wondering if just to be cognizant of time, like experiential learning, we could talk another whole hour on that. Yeah. So definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think um, maybe we have to think about putting that into next week's episode because I think to give it the, the due that it deserves, because it's going to, we'll go down many rabbit trails as we have already in this one. We've, we've barely gotten out of constructionism. So, well, it's like I said, I wanted to over-prepare rather than under-prepare, right? But, oh, it's always the way to go. And that's always the way these go. So I appreciate that. You need that. more soapboxes though, Tim. You didn't provide us with enough soapboxes. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe next time we'll stack them up. And then yeah. Yeah. You get us up early in the morning. We're all fired up and there's just not enough soapboxes here. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, well, I mean, I was almost ready to start going off with the assessments pieces because that's, uh, <laughs> that's a big issue. I'm sure I'm surprised, Chad, you didn't go off the rails with assessments because you, you're, a, you're a... He wanted to. There wasn't a oh, gap. There was no pause. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. Like, we can keep going. Like, these things, we can go. We can have one on assessment, I think. And we could spend a whole hour just slightly unpacking that right so i think we should and i think we uh maybe we could invite my colleague along okay that one that would be great i do amazing i do want to say um we need to keep front and center this conversation of cross-pollination into the Mm. disciplinary approaches because i think that is i think we're going to take a different look at that i think that we'll have a 21st century view on that discussion. So, yeah. Well, we've been, it's funny that we mentioned it now because I was just listening to a podcast the other day with, um, it's called Teaching in Higher Ed with Bonnie Stahoviak and she had Martha Burtis and Robin DeRosa on it. That was a great they episode, talked, by the way. Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah. But they talked a lot about interdisciplinary, like how that's becoming more and more of a thing, even in academia, right? We're starting to see all these interdisciplinary degrees and Martha was like, it's good that we have our, the ones that we're bound within, but it's also good to have that broad approach where people can step outside of that one area. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're talking about is doing that within trades as well. And like you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier too, Vassal, is getting rid of this whole vocational training versus academic training idea and then just call it education. Yeah. So yeah. We need to um, embrace that. Yeah, sorry, Chad, cut you off there. I didn't mean to. I just we're That's running okay. out of time. Yeah, I know we're gonna have to do Pushing the hand. Pushing you off your soapbox. Yes, Get okay. yeah. you're gonna have to do the hand here. But I mean, encouraging on an encouraging note, TRU they've been uh, they've had this in, in session for quite a long while, and at VIU, um, it was approved, I believe, about eighteen months ago that a red seal is now equivalent to sixty credits that will then take you into um, a general degree. So that's yeah. 50% of your degree. And yeah. so I think that we, you know, we are making those small steps forward, but I mean, I think we, you know, we definitely should uh, kick off on that one. I can oh. hardly wait till next Friday. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really important to make that bridge. And uh, so as we wrap up here, thank you everybody for listening. And uh, man, this hour went by quick, too quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, just think if it was like five o'clock and it was happy hour when we were doing this, we, would have, we wouldn't have made it through the first, first thing. <laughs> we are going to do pints and pedagogy one day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. We'll have to press the record button on that one because I'm sure... Uh, 
as the pints flow, so will a conversation. And we we'll have, have to, to get the we'll get the cult crew involved in that one, eh, Sally? Yes, it's their <laughs> it's their thing. Pints and yeah. pedagogy, and yeah, we're all over that idea. Yeah. Well, it's a great platform to have uh, 16 people on a podcast, that's for sure. Yeah, but, on uh, soapboxes. <laughs> and 40, bo- 40 soapboxes. Everybody brings their own soapbox and I'll bring a couple extra just in case. All right. Well, thanks for spending the time with us. And uh, yeah, we're, we're going to do this again. Uh, so for those of you listening, uh, this is one of three. And uh, well, it's one of three. That's laughable. Time willing, time willing, <laughs> life, life willing, everything else willing. Uh, it may be one of many. Um, so we might, we might have some new co-hosts. We have the chat and Sally. Nice. Mm-hmm. Great. Very good. Thank All right. you. My pleasure. Okay. Take care.